Jesus. Amen. So, as I mentioned, it's a really pretty powerful tie into where we are in our text in Hebrews this morning. So we've been 21 weeks into this really deep, in-depth theological dive in which we've kind of had our eyes open theologically to some very challenging yet very beautiful pieces of this redemptive history that God has invited us into through Christ. And Hebrews is this picture, and if I had to boil it down, as I kind of mentioned when I, I talk about all this stuff, boil it down to these two giant kind of big pieces of this puzzle, which is Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. The entire book is about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, meaning that Jesus is all we will ever need. It is not Jesus and anything else. He is completely and totally sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient. His death was sufficient, conquering death once and for all. He is all that we need in life and in death. But he is also completely supreme, meaning that he is above all and that in him all things hold together, that he is sovereign, that God is in complete and total control, even over the chaos, even over the things that we don't understand. And Hebrews, as an uh, author or a preacher, our writer, uh, our speaker, our, our preacher, is telling us that this is who Jesus is, and he's compelling this group of Jewish hearers to not return to an old way of thinking and an old way of life, that engaged in an old culture and an old covenant, but instead to understand that Jesus fulfilled those promises and he is better than everything life has had to offer up until this point. That he's better than the law, better than the angels, better than Moses, right? That he literally has entered into a new covenant in which he is the mediator, he is the better high priest. And we have spent the entire book of Hebrews going through those movements of better. And we entered into chapter 9. We've really been spending a couple weeks talking about the old and the new covenant. And how Jesus came in and fulfilled the old covenant. The old covenant didn't just disappear. Jesus fulfilled it. He became the end of that covenant that God entered into uh, with Israel through Moses. And we gave that out in depth. And so I won't get into it this morning. But he fulfilled that covenant and ushered us into a new covenant. A covenant that was sealed in the blood of Christ. That is not written between God and a people group, but is written between God and individuals. And he writes it upon our hearts, not on tablets of stone. And he seals it in the blood of Jesus, of which Jesus is the great and perfect and the only high priest we'll ever need. He is our only mediator, meaning that you, as someone who puts their hope and faith and trust in Christ, have access to holy, mighty, magnificent God without the need of anybody to go between you. He is our access point to the presence of God. And Brandon spent some time last week talking about the beauty of this new covenant in its detail. And what we're going to see this morning as we wrap up chapter 9 is that there is this, some incredible promises that are wrapped up in this new covenant that should change the way that we think and the way that we understand life and death because we have been given and invited into this great heavenly welcoming. And that's what the new covenant promises us. And we're going to look at it in terms of a couple of questions that I think the text implies, but really what it is it's this invitation to this great heavenly welcoming of which we have become recipients in Christ. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be wrapping that up today um, as we kind of address some implications in the text of what this new covenant might truly mean for us. And so if you haven't caught up with us, it is a, uh, I invite you to go and take a listen. We've got all our stuff online, podcasts, whatever. We go into some deep detail. I, I've been telling you that Hebrews really, the way we're preaching it is really hard. It's, it's hard because it's like 
We're not able to go as in-depth as we would like to, and you don't quite see all the beauty. It's kind of like taking a a glass-bottom boat ride, right? We can point some things out. You can see some fish and some snails in the sea or whatever. I think there's sea snails. But if you go under the water and you get in-depth with it and you can see the vibrance and the colors and all those things, that's where Hebrews really comes alive. And so we've been kind of pointing out some of these things, but... Um, we haven't gone as in-depth as we'd like to. One day, we'll, hopefully, we'll just teach and teach and teach through it in a Bible study setting or whatever. But it's, it's incredible. But what we're looking at are these kind of big, sweeping overviews. And that's kind of where we're going to be today, in a sweeping overview of some of these true promises that are given to us in this new covenant and why this new covenant is so incredibly beautiful. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to try and do this relatively quickly this morning because there are some really great pieces here that I want you to see. Um, but we could go down a couple of rabbit holes that we're going to try to avoid. So um, if you've got to open up to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 23. Before we do that, let's just pray. Ask God to teach our hearts, turn our hearts over to him this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Lord, as we just spent a bunch of time praying, we believe that you are a God who answers prayers. And one of the prayers we're praying this morning is that you would teach us. So take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. Whatever that means, whatever you need to hear, whatever needs to speak to your soul, just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone around you, in front of you, maybe behind you. Just ask that the Lord would move in them. We want to be a church, a community that's interested in what God is doing in the people around us. I say this every single week. Not everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is about you. Be a person of prayer. Pray for the people around you. So take a moment. Pray for that person, even if you don't know their name, even if you're here for the first time, and just ask God to move in them. Lord, we believe an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. We hold very tightly to the authority of Scripture. And so, Lord, we believe that you will show us yourself through your word because it is your word. It is a theopunestos, the very breath of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning that we would have an encounter and a love affair with the word of God. Uh, Lord, you are the one that teaches. It will be nothing that I say. It will be all the things that you instruct in our heart, for you are sovereign. Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We ask you to be glorified and exalted, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So Hebrews 9 is really the turning point of this argument that our author is making about why the old covenant, old way of life is obsolete and no longer needed. And remember, he's, he's writing or really preaching to a Hebrew audience. He's, he's imploring them to turn their attention away from the old way of life that was fulfilled into a new way of life, life that is promised in Christ. And he goes into some pretty in-depth history. He talks about the actual furnishings of the tabernacle and why those furnishings were there and the, the reference that it makes the New Testament. It's kind of all these pieces. And he's been explaining to them why the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and its ways are no longer needed. And he's going to pick that same train of thought up about why the old sacrifice and the tabernacle and the old ways are no longer part of the new promise that we have in Christ. That Christ has done something pretty incredible. And he's going to do it by implying a few questions that I think are in our text that I'll lift up and they kind of answer on their own. But this is Hebrews 9, 23 through, um, well, we'll just go through 10. So it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time um, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we're actually picking up in the middle of a kind of a, a section here. And so by brief reminder, he is drawing our attention towards the tabernacle and saying, this is why these sacrifices had to happen. But then Christ came and he becomes the mediator of a new covenant. And there's a new way of thinking and a new way of doing things. And that way is so supremely better that I want to show you why the old covenant is closed and fulfilled and the new covenant is open to Christ and it's open to you. By way of doing that, we've got to understand a little bit of a principle that's kind of born out of a, a bigger picture that we call Reformed theology. And Reformed theology essentially is a, it's a theology or a way of thinking that really hovers around several different key concepts. It hovers around the idea of the, the authority of Scripture, all right? hovers around the idea of the sovereignty of God, salvation by grace, and the necessity of evangelism. And so it's a way of thinking about life and theology in terms of those big pieces. And it was born out of the 16th century reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, those kind of pieces. But it's a, it's a lot of what makes up who we are because we have this deep belief in the authority of Scripture. We believe in the sovereignty, the deep sovereignty of God, that he's in control of all things, that all things hold together because who he is. And we believe in salvation by grace alone. There's no other way to get to heaven than through Christ. And that we are called by God through the Holy Spirit to go and tell the world, right? The idea of the necessity of evangelism. But wrapped up in the little bit of that is a guy by the name of John Calvin has got a whole bunch of different ideas, but one of the ideas that he has is this idea that came forth that we call total depravity. And the idea with total depravity is simply this, that you and I are completely and totally sinful. In other words, there's nothing really good in us. And that idea of total depravity is actually a very biblical concept. That there is nothing good enough. Now, total does not mean that we are as sinful as we could ever be. You are always capable of doing worse things than you're doing now. Humanity is always capable of worse. But total means that there's nothing in our heart or in our mind, right, that on our own is pleasing to God. Everything in us is poisoned by our sinful nature, poisoned by sin at the fall, and therefore without the redemptive, regenerative nature of the Holy Spirit through Christ, we have nothing to offer God. In other words, we can never work our way, merit our way, earn our way to God by our thoughts, by our actions, or by how we live, no matter how good we think they are. The only access that we have to Christ or to Holy God is through Christ, right? So we are at our core totally hopeless and helpless without Jesus. That's all that really means. And the reason that's important is because this is where we are at the end of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant could not forgive sin. We've talked about this a lot. It could only atone for sin. It covered it. It never forgave anything. The Old Covenant was impossible to keep. It's why every single year the high priest of Aaron's lineage had to go into the tabernacle, into the temple, and make a sacrifice for the people. They had to cover the things in blood, blood that was not their own, blood of an animal sacrifice, to make atonement for sin. 
And it's why every single year it happened again and again and again because the old covenant in its way was set up as failure. There was no way for it to be perfect. In fact, it was never intended to be. The old covenant always pointed to a new and a better covenant that would come with Christ. You cannot read the Old Testament without the foreshadow of the coming of Jesus, right? So we stand at the end of the old covenant completely hopeless and helpless. We are unable to win our way to the presence of God. And that is where the beauty of Jesus comes in. And our text asks a couple of really important questions. And they're complicated questions, and it's kind of a deep text. But this is the first one it asks. It essentially asks us this, right? Why does the heavenly and holy place with its heavenly and holy things need to be cleansed? Now, you got to read that first verse to understand this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So when we think about the temple and the, or the tabernacle, which Brandon and I have spent the past couple weeks talking about, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies once a year, and he would take a hyssop branch that was dripped in blood with all of its kind of sacrificial things that led up to that place, and they would sprinkle once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies, they'd sprinkle the ark and all the man-made pieces in there with blood. Right? The idea simply being is that God is holy and miraculous and mighty and holy, perfect, amazing. There is nothing bad in him. And humanity is deeply defiled and is in deeply, deep, deep need of forgiveness. And humanity cannot access holy God without the sacrifice of blood. Brandon spent a lot of time talking about this last week. But the idea is the high priest would go in and he would literally sprinkle blood on all the man-made objects. And our text says that was absolutely necessary because these were copies of heavenly things. In other words, they were man-made copies of where the presence of God was. And God dwelled in the presence. He dwelled in the ark, dwelled in the holy of holies. God's presence was there. And it was necessary when humanity came in for those things to be cleansed because they were part of our sinful humanity, our sinful nature. So obviously God in this holy, incredible holy presence, right? Those things had to be cleansed. That makes sense to us. So it makes sense that before the high priest went in or as he went in, he took the blood sacrificed by an animal and cleansed these earthly things, right? But the text also leads us into an interesting question that says, that because of those things had to be cleansed, right? And they were just copies. But that it is also necessary that the heavenly things themselves be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. So it asks a very interesting question. We can get why the earthly things need to be cleansed. But why the heavenly places and the heavenly things, why do those need to be cleansed? Is heaven defiled? Is there sin there? It asks a really big question. And you can go down a lot of deep theological rabbit holes, but you've got to pay attention to verse 24 to understand what our author is getting at. And this is what he says. He says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself and appeared for us in God's presence. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when Christ died, he did not enter a man-made temple. In other words, Christ did not go into the tabernacle where man had made and formulated all these things and created by his own hands the ark and all those kind of things. Christ did not go into a man-made place, but Christ died and entered heaven itself in the very presence of God, and he did it for us. So the answer to that question is really in the for us, meaning that the new covenant grants us access to God's presence 
in heaven. So literally, most literally, that when we die, we receive Christ as our Savior, we are guaranteed access to the presence of God in heaven. That is part of the glorious truth of the new covenant, which means that at some point after death, we will reside in heaven with the King of Kings. And you, sinful, broken, and me, full of debauchery and defilement, are at one point going to enter heaven. So what did Christ have to do to ready that for us? Essentially, Christ has to cleanse it because he's cleansing us. So it's not that heaven itself is impure. It's that God is making a place for us. And the author basically says that Christ didn't enter the tabernacle. He entered the presence of God. And he doesn't do it with a blood sacrifice of an animal. He does it with his own. He cleansed and made a way for you. And this is why this is so beautifully important. is because this is what I call the great heavenly welcoming. Because here's the truth, and where total depravity comes in. You and I are defiled. We are broken. We are sinful. We are full of debauchery. There is nothing good in us. Now, you can argue with me all you want to, but just open the Bible. It is clear that God is holy and magnificent. And from birth, we have been steeped and ruined by sin. And therefore, we have no access point to God apart from Christ. So what does Jesus do? He dies, bears all the sin of humanity, goes not into the temple tabernacle or into the tabernacle or temple holy place, but enters into heaven and cleanses it and prepares for you. Meaning the reason that those heavenly places and heavenly things are being cleansed symbolically is because you will be there. This is the great welcoming that you, the great defiler, the great broken one with all of your lusts and longings and failures are welcome in heaven. Now this is this incredible, beautiful, triumphant peace. Because here's the thing. I know me. I know my heart. I know my sinful leanings. I can't imagine the terror that it might be to stand before one day a holy God with all the things that I've thought, all the things that I've done, all the shame that I have riddled through me and know that he knows every single one of them. And that somehow I am now welcome into this place where there is no more tears, no more brokenness, no more mourning. Beauty upon beauty upon beauty. In my current state, I would ruin that place. Right? That's essentially what our author's saying. Christ knew that. So he died and bored your sins and cleansed it with his own blood because one day you would be there. In other words, he has prepared this incredible place in the actual presence of God for you. This is the great welcoming and that your sin no longer defines you, no longer goes before you. You have been free and are fully alive in Christ. And you, it's this great invitation in which God is saying, you are welcome here. Not because of you, not because of what you've done, not because of how you look, how you dress, the moral things you've done, but because my son took your sin and he cleansed this place in my presence. And you are beautiful. You're free. You are clean, white as snow, right? So we have this incredible picture. So why does the heavenly places with heavenly things need cleansing? Because you are defiling and broken and full of debauchery. And so Jesus died and freed you from all that and cleansed the places essentially because you would be there from a spiritual standpoint. 
goes on to say this. Let's look at verse 25. How does this begin to happen? So if that's the case, then how really, right, does this great heavenly welcome, welcoming happen? This is what he says in verse 25. Not that Christ, or nor did Christ enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest entered the holy place every year with the blood that was not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So how does this great heavenly welcoming happen? Well, Christ did something incredibly significant that happened, and it happened once for all. And the assumption here is not that everybody just is part of this great welcoming, that we are guaranteed access and entry to heaven. That when we die, all of humanity just rolls into heaven as a better place. The actual point here is that that's not guaranteed apart from Christ at all. So how does this great heavenly awakening happen? Well, Jesus did a couple of things. One, it says that he doesn't enter into the holy place year after year after year, which is what the high priest did from the beginning of the Old Covenant. Every year, whether they were in the tabernacle wandering around the wilderness in Egypt or whether they were in the temple built on Mount Moriah, every single year the high priest or the lineage of the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice again for the sin of themselves and for the people. Every single year. Our text says that the reason this great welcoming happens is because Jesus doesn't have to do that, nor did that. He did it once and he did it for all. And the value here is unmistakable because here's what would happen. If Jesus had to go and literally suffer year after year after year for our sin, starting from the creation because Jesus' sin covers the sin of Adam and Eve, from the beginning of time, every year, Jesus would have to make a sacrifice, right? The shameful sacrifice of the cross year after year after year for the sins of humanity. You know what that does to the death and sacrifice of Jesus? It renders it weak. And ineffective. Because if it only lasts for a period of time, it is thus ineffective for eternity. And this is what the Hebrew people were looking at. They were looking at the idea that their sins were always before them. They were never truly forgiven. They were only atoned for. Which meant that every year my sins came back in my face. And I stood as an enemy of God. Year after year after year. But Jesus as part of this great heavenly welcoming, goes once for all, never goes again, and never has to go again because his death and his sacrifice is completely and totally sufficient and effective. Meaning that once you put your faith in Christ, you have been invited into this incredible welcoming to heaven in which God's presence is yours. The temple has been torn in two. The floodgates of grace have been opened. Your sin is no longer before you ever. But as far as the east is from the west, your red has been turned to white. God remembers it no more. This is the great heavenly welcoming that you are no longer slave to those things and Jesus never has to die again. We never re-crucify Christ, but his death covers and forgives and frees from sin. So how does this great heavenly welcoming happen? Because Jesus was completely and totally the perfect sacrifice of which there would never be another. 
which means it's not Jesus plus your good moral behavior. It means it's not Jesus plus your performance. It means it's not Jesus plus your perfect prayer life. It means it's just Jesus. And he renders all other things ineffective because he is the only effective way. But it gives us access to the floodgates of grace in which you no longer are slave to your sin that God has separated you from. So you no longer have to bear its shame. You no longer have to bear the weight of its punishment and you no longer have to fear death. Death no longer has victory. I mean, no longer has its sting. It is now victory in Christ. Death becomes victory where it once was punitive. It is now victorious. So we've got this, how does this great welcoming happen? Because Jesus' death was effective, beautifully effective, once for all, never to do it again. And then the last section, which we'll kind of go through pretty quickly, is essentially this. How is Christ's suffering, right, reveal his full glory? Well, listen to these verses. And these are challenging. So just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So how is Christ sacrificed? How does it bring about his glory? Well, there's a couple of things here. And really, I'll give you the answer first, and then we'll kind of dive. The answer is simply this. Because Jesus doesn't just die for us. He actually dies with us and stands with us in judgment. There's two really important pieces there. But the first one we've got to address is this. Judgment is a very real thing. Most of us want to look past it. We want to look past the judgment of God. We want to skip over those verses and not really talk about it because it doesn't make our hearts feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't tickle me in the right places when I walk out of church to think that I have a God who literally by his just nature will punish all sin. Hebrews doesn't actually leave us uh, not knowing what that looks like. In fact, in verse 27, he talks about that there is a fearful expectation of judgment, enraging fire that will consume the enemies of God. He goes on in verse 30 to say, For we know that in him, uh, they said that he is, vengeance is the Lord's and I will repay. The Lord will judge his people and is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the judgment of the living God. So judgment is a very real thing. What that means is that every single one of us in this room will die, right? I mean, as sure as anything is, death is it. It is imminent. And I'm not saying that to be like real Debbie Downer. The reality is you will die. We are all in the process of just getting closer. Yeah, I know. Except for me, 39 again. So we're just holding on. But we're all in the process of death, right? It's happening. But death, the beautiful thing is that death is actually not the end. It's also the terrifying thing. It's the beautiful, terrifying thing that death is not the end. The Bible actually tells us that there is something after death. That we don't just decompose into the ground and our consciousness goes away like a vapor. But there is something waiting for us, an eternal life. And as we die, the Bible is very clear that we will face judgment for how we lived here on earth. We will face judgment on how we kept God's promises, how we worshiped, how we lived our moral life, right? We have that literally. Is that God speaking to me right now? He's saying, hey, you're, you're messing that up. Let me, let me take it from here. <laughs> you're good. <clears throat> I could hear like James Earl Jones talking to the Bible. So we're going to face this judgment. 
Oh, there it is again. It's incredible. It's like a, it's the same voice. I watched Field of Dreams again this weekend, by the way. Side note, um, man, that voice, James Earl Jones, <laughs> sticks in my soul. That might be the voice of God. So we're going to face this judgment. It's very true and it's very real, all right? And the reality is, is that there is, we are going to stand before this God and he is going to hold us account to our sin, to our actions, to our thoughts, and to the way that we lived. And it's terrifying. Because here's the reality. Not one of us, this is why the old covenant was such a failure. Not one of us can stand before God and said, I've done it right, flawless, sinless. You know what the Bible tells us is that if we have no way to do that, we are destined for the wrath of God. That is like a consuming fire. It's a terrifying prospect. But the beauty of Christ is that this terrifying judgment that we will all face is actually not ours to face alone. And that is what this last section Hebrews is essentially saying. He's saying that Christ's glory really is in twofold truths. The first one is that he died and with him we die also. And the second one is we stand in judgment, but he stands in judgment with us. So listen to that verse again, verse 27. As a man is destined to die once and then to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. So the first part of that is this. Christ died to bear your sin, my sin, meaning that I no longer have to carry it. That death for sin was perfectly sufficient. It is sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. It is sufficient that I no longer have to carry the shame of sin and death. That when I put my hope and faith in Christ, he bore my sins. He exchanged my sin for his glory, right? As 2 Corinthians says, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he, he traded, exchanged his glory for our sinfulness. And it is totally sufficient. There is nothing else you will ever need. Christ died for you and in him we died also to our old way of life and we have been made new. It's a great promise. But guess what? We still have to face judgment. Like it or not, we will still face it. But there's an application of that that is part of this new covenant. And the application of that is that we stand in judgment, but Christ stands with us. And that's why it says Christ came once to bear sin. He's coming again not to bear sin because that has been taken care of. He's coming again so that we might have the beauty of salvation when we face judgment. In other words, Christ stands with us in judgment as a shield from the raging fire of God. And he atones and covers and frees us into a life of victory and eternal life. That is the application of of God's saving grace in Christ is that although we will still all face God's judgment, we will all have to hold be accountable for our sin, it is not on us. Jesus stands as this asbestos shield against the raging fires of God's justice. And therefore, we are not only protected, we are free and fully alive. And it is the second portion, the application, if you will, of what it means to be saved by grace. Not only are we saved, right, for eternity, but we are also saved from the due punishment of God's wrath. 
so that when we stand in judgment, it is not a fearful thing. In other words, as we talk with, as Pam was mentioning, we welcome death as followers of Christ. We're not afraid of it. We welcome death because we know that we stand before God's judgment. We have been freed and atoned for, and death no longer is punitive and a punishment, but it is a victory. It's why that when we let someone that we know loves Jesus go, when we watch them fade into glory, we actually call it they are stepping into glory because death no longer has sting, but Christ in his triumphant power shields us from God's judgment and we have victory and are fully alive in Christ as we were created to be in God's presence, sinless, because Jesus has freed us. And this is why facing death as a non-believer is a terrifying reality. Like it or not, whatever your theology is, if you open scripture, we will all stand before God. And apart from Christ, it should terrify us. And it should shake us. And you know what we're going to see in Hebrews 10? We're going to see Hebrews 10 tell us that there are people in the community that play the game but don't know Christ. And he's shaking us to our core saying, make sure you've truly given your life to Jesus and you aren't playing the religious game because the religious game will lead to the raging fires of God's judgment. And it is a sobering wake-up call. But for those of us that have given our lives in Christ, we can rest assured in the beauty that not only have I been saved for abundant life here on earth, but I have the beautiful shield of Christ that will not only save me from God's judgment, but provide victory in life for eternity. And therefore, because that place was cleansed by the blood of Jesus, not the mere copy of the human hands made, but the actual presence of God has been cleansed for me because I was coming in with all of my brokenness, all of my defilement, all of my shame. Christ cleansed me, cleansed those places. I stand free in the presence of God as part of this great heavenly welcoming. If you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever felt like people have not included you or you never had any friends, if you've ever felt alone, it is the opposite of everything you will feel in the eternity presence of God. That great heavenly welcoming with cheers and the crowd of witnesses that will be excited for your return. It's the beauty of community, heavenly true community. It is the great welcoming. You are not a stranger there. And it's God saying, come. You defiled, you broken, you sinful, you depraved. You are welcome here because of Christ. And that is the gospel rolled up in a tortilla in a giant amazing burrito. It's just incredible. What we're going to see as we move on are the real life applications of what happens if we don't know Jesus. And it's terrifying. But for today, for those of us who put our faith in Christ, this is what welcomes you. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know, and you're like, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I've ever given my life to Christ. We want you to have that assurance. In fact, God wants that for you. He wants you to be confident in your salvation. So come visit with myself, Brandon, sit in the back, and we will walk you through and talk you this gospel and help you step into a relationship with Jesus. It will forever change your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the complicated scripture that leads to the simplistic beauty of life. That there are challenging things here, but they are wonderfully beautiful things that in Jesus we have new life. That you have prepared a way that you have exchanged our sin for your glory. And you are welcoming us in this great heavenly welcoming. And that Christ, Lord, both bore our sins and shields us from judgment. So that we stand free and alive 
Lord, there are no greater promises that we have abundant life here on earth and the glorious promise of eternity in heaven. The death no longer is punitive. Death no longer has sting. The death is victory. It's victory. Victory in Jesus. So Lord, as I close our time in worship, I pray that you would make those things true.